Welcome to the Recovery Hour podcast, where we choose to recover out loud by sharing our personal stories of inspiration, hope, and triumph. Together, we can end the stigma and shame typically tied to mental illness and the disease of addiction. We are proof that recovery does happen. Joy and laughter may be involved. This is the Recovery Hour with Lori Winfeld. Hi, friends. I'm so excited for the much-anticipated episode. I interviewed my sweet nephew, Paul O'Hara, in New York City. Such a special young man. He has endured some pretty traumatic events, and we go into great detail during this episode. I wanted to add a disclaimer, perhaps a trigger warning for those of you who may not be ready to hear details of intergenerational trauma, physical abuse, suicide, and very detailed accounts of personal injury. Please listen with caution and take care of yourself while doing so. If you have to pause or perhaps come back to it, or maybe this episode isn't for you, we understand. I'm so proud of the conversation Paul is sharing with us. As we all know, mental health has long been a taboo topic to discuss as a man. But lucky for us, there are people out there like Paul that want to be heard to ensure those without a voice know they are not alone and they can seek help. Enjoy this very personal and very candid conversation. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Recovery Hour with Lori Winfeld. I am beyond freaking excited. I'm going to get my New York accent here today because I have one of the most important people in my life, my favorite boy, Paul Thomas O'Hara. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Yeah. Let me tell the listeners about Paul. Y'all have heard about Paul before, but in the larger form of my brother who passed away years and years ago, and I've always talked about him and love him and keep his memory alive. Well, he's he is a little who's not so little. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And um, he's here with us today to talk about all things mental health, all things that you can imagine a man going through from birth till now with all sorts of traumas. So we're going to get into that. It's going to be a little deep today, which I'm kind of excited about and also personal because this is my nephew. And so if you all have any issues out there, you know what I'm going to say about that. F you. <laughs> Foley, how are you? Are you ready? Yeah, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm, uh, I love I'm excited. It. I'm you so know, glad. A lot of things, a lot of things that are deep and important to me, and I'd love to try and talk and have a little outreach. And if I could help somebody else, you know, going through similar issues or different issues and struggles, that'd be cool. It's so important, and that's why I've always thought of you. When I, when I started doing this podcast a few years back, I thought if he's comfortable, I'd love for him to get on because you just really embrace grace when dealing with so many fucked up issues. (laughs) I mean, just like, um, I'm, we're going to get into that. And just a few, you know, I, I have talked about my personal story. And so your dad, my brother was in a tragic accident and unfortunately lost his life. And when that happened, you were only two years old. Yeah, definitely. And you essentially were raised without a father and you had a, a wonderful and beautiful mom who took care of you. And she also has since passed. And we're going to talk about Amanda as well. Gosh. And then you had some New York police stuff and you had some, your, I mean, just so much stuff. Tell us a little bit, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, uh, I'm 29 years old now, soon to be 30, treading that. Um <laughs> 
but I'm proud to be a New York City fireman. You know, that's pretty much part of my main identity. I'm a big music guy. I love rock and roll of pretty much any rock. Love, you know, most music now. And, you know, I'm married and soon to hopefully be starting a family of my own, which I'm very excited for and looking forward to that. And I have a close, close like friend group that, you know, I'm just happy to hang out with and, you know, have that in my life. And I'm lucky to have a big family. And, you know, it's pretty much who I am. Yeah. Becoming a fireman, I know that that was something very important to you. Uh, tell the listeners why becoming a fireman was something that was important to you. Obviously, it was important to me because my dad, he had died in a gas explosion. Your brother, having that experience, um, you know, knowing that you could like, you know, we lost everything and, you know, being able to outreach and help people in that time of need. And then, you know, even later on in my life, we had crazy, we had multiple fires in my life and had lost everything more than once. So growing up and having that experience just kind of pushed me to want to face whatever like you know affected me growing up and then also do the best I could to help people in you know similar scenarios and you know I've been always drawn to trying to help people you know whatever gifts I was given you know I feel like I'm I I have the uh, <laughs> the bravery or the you know courage to go out and do it and I have the god-given ability and the strengths and physical tools for the job so like I feel like I owe it to people to try and help them do the right thing Amazing. So taking a super negative to a positive and learning how to really, you know, triumph instead of falling back and and sitting around going, oh, poor me, right? Yeah, that's pretty much the mentality I kind of grew up with is just trying to make the positive out of whatever was negative, you know, to sit back and dwell on traumas and, you know, negativity kind of just didn't seem like it was going to sit right with me. And then it just seemed like I would just been treading water instead of moving forward. Right. Yeah. So there's, it's interesting. There's a piece of that that makes me think because of my own experiences with trauma, you brought trauma up. And so you say like, let's not look back, let's move forward. But at the same time, you also have to identify those traumas and sort of work through them, not to continue to feel that pain throughout your entire life in that sort of negative thing. So did you find yourself ever in a place like as you were growing up, because you have been really tasked with raising a family as a child, right? You were always the man of the house. I know that's a term you've you've often used with your dad being gone so early and your mom having her own mental health issues. So how do you feel about, as you were growing up, about your traumas and any help that you looked for when you were younger? A big thing, I feel like obviously, yeah, I did take on that, like that term of like the man of the house. I took pride in that. Um, But a big thing was like, I still had a pretty large family whether that be my extended family or my immediate family I was able to like fall back on them on top of you know my mom dated Eric for 12 years and then I also had Popoff who was my step-grandfather so I had two men that you know have no blood relation to me but were there for me anytime I really needed it and Mm kind of had them as male role models so I think that's like really huge for me um those two like men kind of just gave me you know a direction and somewhere to look up to and stuff like that which helped and then having like a family there, like there was never like any like, you know, lack of family, lack of, you know, anything, you know, even my mom, like I give her tons of credit. Like we definitely looking back, we were struggling in poverty and things like that. And, you know, money, finances, my mom didn't really have regular jobs. So like, you know, but at the time I didn't really feel like that. I didn't like look at myself and I was like, wow, I'm a poor kid or, you know, it's like <laughs> poor, poor me. Like, I don't know, should we have dinner on the table? Maybe it wasn't you know, the most gourmet and the the top chef stuff, but 
it was right. dinner was on the table. I didn't skip any meals, clearly. And then uh <laughs> <laughs> you handsome little devil. <laughs> um, you know, and I had gifts for, you know, my birthdays and holidays and stuff like that up until I was, you know, in my later teens and stuff. So yeah, you know, I can't really complain. I you know I feel like some people look at my life or hear the story and they're like, you know, probably think it was terrible, but maybe growing up it wasn't too bad. And then as I matured and started to realize, you know, I appreciated my mom, but also realized some of her faults and the struggles that we went through and yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. That is, that totally rings like similar situation as, you know, when you're, when you're younger and you experience this, you're also in that environment, which is for me talking about recovery and being someone who's sober. I've said this a million times over. If, if you're going to sit in the barbershop, you're going to get a haircut sooner or later. If you're going to go to the bar, you're going to get a drink sooner or later. Right. So while you're yeah you're living this lifestyle as a child, you don't really know any different. And I, and I say this of my own experience as well. Like you're just in it and you're yeah. living it and you don't know any different, right? Like, exactly. I don't know, block cheese is normal, isn't it? Paying for yeah. <laughs> using food stamps to pay for chips at the corner store is what everybody does, isn't it? Like, yeah. you know, there's just certain things that I think we both experienced in, in separate generations that we just accepted as that was our life because that's what we saw around us. Uh, what's lovely about hearing your story and and also living mine is knowing as we grow up that there are certain things that we don't necessarily wish for the rest of our families. And that's what they call the cycle breakers. And that's what I'm just so proud of being is someone who has just stood up and said, you know what, that that's enough for some people. It's just not enough for me. Yeah. Um, that's kind of how I felt pretty much. It's I've always had goals for myself and you know, just felt like you know, I have to reach these goals. And that's exactly my mentality. It's like things are okay here. They People accepted certain things, but I'm not accepting it. I have these goals and you know, I'm going to be driven to, to make those goals happen and achieve my dreams. Yeah, yeah. And I've always looked, I've looked up to you too. You know, honestly, like, you know, we haven't had the closest relationship in distance and, you know, but I've always like, you know, looked at you as like a positive influence in my life and someone to, to look up to. And you know, obviously, like you said, I can relate to some of the ways you grew up and I know it definitely wasn't easy for you. You know, you lost your dad and then our family's tough. So, you know, you had your, your you know, upbringing and you've overcome that and you're very successful and you even found your faults and I have nothing but respect for you admitting that you had a problem and going out and fixing that. Yeah, that's very admirable. Thank you. That means a lot. And it's making my heart happy that you said all that. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I think that's the point is for people like us, and you said this earlier that, that, and you said it without hesitation is that you have a gift. And as soon as you, you all, everyone, when you know it, you know, it. like sooner or later you realize like, holy shit, this is a gift. Like I have been given the ability to help others because of things that I have experienced in my life. And I will remember back to, oh my gosh, when I don't know how old was I was, but my mom took us to um, see my, my stepdad, Hoy was doing a a construction project in Manhattan. And I just remember getting there from Staten Island. And as we were like running up to this ginormous building, there was a man outside and clearly was living outside of this building. And I just remember locking eyes with him and sort of thinking, why him, not me? How come he's out here with nothing. And I have this sack lunch, right? I was so excited. I had the sack lunch and yeah. who knows, it was probably moldy bread and like six day old <laughs> peanut butter. But 
I had something right. And so I just remember going upstairs and, and, you know, my, my memory was Mm -hmm. telling my mom, I really wanted to give my sandwich to the guy downstairs. And she was just like, you're, you're not going to be eating anything later. (laughs) You know, like this is your food. This is what you got. And I said, no, 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 no. I want to bring it downstairs. And so, so she let me and I, I will never forget that moment. And I feel like that was the first time I realized this gift of giving and being the helper, right? It's just saying like, shit, a lot of stuff has gone down. A lot of, we got a shit plate handed to us. Sometimes you look at it that way. And how do you get through that? And it's resilience and it's love and it's positivity. And it's exactly what you just said about recognizing some things that aren't right. And you know what? We have the opportunity to make the changes. So um, that was a whole spiel. I don't know where that came from, but I want to talk to you a little more about your dad. So I, lucky, lucky me, I do get to, because I have gone through so much therapy, I am now in a really good place where I can think back to beautiful memories and and understand that the time I did have with him, and he was a pain in the ass, by the way, uh, the time that I did have with him was wonderful and not to so much focus on his accident, but it was gruesome. And so what I'd love for you to talk to the listeners about as being basically a toddler when this accident happened to your dad, what was, what was it like growing up? And I don't want to say the shadow because I don't feel like you were ever in a shadow, but you look like your dad. A lot of people are like, oh, my God, he's just like Polly, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, like, how did that feel as you were growing up? Um, I mean, it's still a thing to this day, to be honest. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say, like you said, I wasn't like in his shadow completely, but there was still like kind of like the the shoes to fill kind of deal with, especially with our family and you know how they felt and how much, you know, that scar pretty much or that wound hurt them with his, you know, dying so young and with a young family and such a bright future ahead of him, like on top of, you know, sounds like he was, you know, such a great person. And, you know, I mean, obviously I, that's what I hear. And it sounds like everyone knows that he was such a great person. So to lose that person so young and tragically definitely left big wounds for them. And, you know, I try and help them, you know, as much as I can, you know, I, I embrace it. I'm not going to be the guy who's like, oh, I hate when they're like, oh, you look like, just like them. You act just like them. You know, I embrace that. I'm proud of that. But at the same time, it has been tough, especially growing up. Like I felt like, you know, I guess the way he died, you know, you know they made him almost like a hero. So maybe that made me aspire to want to be a hero, to be better. But also it was kind of tough because I didn't really know him myself. So like, I feel like sometimes you hear the similar stories, but it's usually like from kids or people who had experiences with their father or mom or, you know, so they, they knew his personality. Like to me, like I thought, you know, it's kind of cool because I came up, made my own personality and like, I guess they just still said I'm still like him. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there's just still differences. Like, you know, he didn't like sports. I love sports. He didn't <laughs> like, you know, he's, he wasn't into cars and motorcycles. I'm into cars and motorcycles and all that stuff. So yeah, I became my own man out of his shadow. And, but, you know, I still, I guess it's just, you know, I think it was tougher than I, you know, when I think about it, it was tough to outlive that, you know, idea of wanting to be, you know, either him or just as good as him or, you know, whatever the image is that was portrayed from my family and other people. It definitely wasn't easy. 
you know, but I'm proud of the man I am today. And, you know, it was weird growing up because I, I do remember like, you know, for a long time, I don't know why, but it was like, I had this idea of like, do we have a family curse? Like I'm going to, you know, am I going to outlive my father? And now I'm here. I've outlived my father. I'm like further in life than he was, which is weird because now I still talk to him and I like still relate to him as my dad. I'm just like having these conversations that I've always had. You know, I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming other people do that too with loved ones. <laughs> Either that or I'm crazy. I'm just admitting to the world. I'm well, well that's, a, that's okay. That's our audience. So we're. <laughs> <laughs> but I have conversations with him to this day. And I'm just like, now I think about it. I'm like, this guy's a, this guy's a kid. <laughs> yeah. Like I tell him about life. You know? Right. Yeah. How, so he was, what was he? 23. Yeah. 23 yeah. years old. Yeah. So for the listeners, I I know some of you had have heard me tell this story, uh, but if you're a new listener, thank you for joining us. And let me just give you a quick spiel on this. I don't remember the exact year. I want to say it was 94 because... Yes. Oh, December okay. 11th, 1994. Um, which was close to your birthday, right? Yeah, I was born December 7th. So you were, um, you just turned two. And then several days later... Um, we got a phone call. And at the time yeah. I, I was living in um, Nevada and Paul, my brother, uh, was stationed in Norfolk, Virginia. And there was an unfortunate accident that we don't have to get into too gruesome of details, but unfortunately there was a a gas leak in Paul's home and um, him actually lighting or um, turning on a, a a light, light switch. switch then ignited the home, which unfortunately Paul was in. The The one most amazing miracle out of all of this was his wife, Amanda, and children, Paul and Madison, were not in the home. So I thank the Lord for that. Um, but unfortunately, he succumbed to his injuries, which were horrific and um, not, but a week later, he had passed. And Ooh, was that hard? Um, like Paul now just said, there's there's two little kids you're thinking of. There's the mom, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Amanda, who was married to my brother. And then you have the extended families that are all kind of tied into this, where you have the grandmas having conversation and the aunts having conversation and, yeah. and sisters. And, and man, it was a bit of a mess. I'll have to tell you that. Um, because it's really yeah, I mean, just from his like from his growing up experience, obviously you had your mom, his mom, and then, you know, his relationship that was close to his aunt and Barbara and then nanny, obviously him living with nanny. It's like he obviously had a lot of people that cared for him and probably took like wouldn't say I don't know what the word is like ownership of just like <laughs> or just felt like, you know, attached to him as a mother figure. You know, and I can't imagine being in their shoes, you know, and. You know, looking back, you know, there was a lot of feelings there and a lot of emotions there. It still is. But, you know, as more of a mature adult and trying to put myself in their shoes, I can kind of understand where they had some resentments and where emotions could have ran high during that time. You know, it's got to be a crazy scenario to be well, put in. For sure. And and I think what you're hinting at a little bit here is, too, there was definitely some animosity between your mom's side of the family and and. Paul, your father's side of the yeah, family, of in sense of like who's in charge of what's going to happen to this kid who just 
is now really literally on his deathbed. And so, you know, that's really intuitive for you to, to say, and to, to know, because yeah, you know, I found myself as an 18 year old, gosh, tea tiny and trying to, to work through that and understand, like you said, this sort of, uh, the power struggle, the resentments, the the buildups. And, and unfortunately with that, it took my relationship from your mother and I's relationship sort of fell to the wayside a little bit after that scenario. Yeah. Um, and again, because of other people, right. As we grew up and I think, and you know, I've talked about this as we grow up and you, you understand and you look back and you work on those things, you recognize like, Oh shit. You know, I was thinking because of the way others behaved, not necessarily where I were, where I was. And when yeah. it comes down to it, we all loved Paul. Yeah, hundred percent. That's all really. That's the crazy thing is like you get angry and everyone has these dramas and put wedges between each other. And it's all based off of the love of the same person. And you look back and you're like, that's ridiculous, but it always seems to happen. And I'm sure we're not the only family that's experienced that, but, uh, yeah, to think about you being an 18 year old, like, you know, girl, and, you know, at that time you think you're an adult, but really you don't know much about anything. Everyone is telling you what it is and you have to cipher through and make your own decisions. But that's pretty hard at a young person. Even thinking to myself at 18, like I felt like I was so, so far ahead. You know, I was definitely more mature probably than my peers, but, right. you know, I still thought like I thought I was, you know, king of the world. I understood and had a grasp <laughs> on everything. And now looking back 11 years later, whatever it is, I'm like, I didn't know nothing. Right, right. I was just a a ball of, you know, (laughs) hormones and emotions that were just exploding (laughs) at anything. Exactly. Well, yeah, now that you say that, it's sort of how I felt and 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 really like a, a ping pong ball, almost like a pinball game. You know, it was the emotions were so high. And 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 for me, what I'm really I'm just sitting myself back into the hospital and, and going through that scenario where there was continuous updates coming out of the room, basically from doctors. And and then there were so many different people. I mean, people that found there were there's so much to the story. Um yeah. gosh. And I'm like, I don't even know how deep I want to get without like crying hysterically. But essentially, you know, with the one the ex- thing I, I I got a question is like yeah. I mean, how did you guys take it as, cause the way my mom always explained it, you know, I have a couple of people's takes on it, but the way my mom always explained it was like, you know, he obviously he lived for like about a week or whatever. They put him in like a medically induced coma. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know if it was just her being so in love with him that she had hope, you know, or was it, you know, did the doctors come out and give her hope? But I had no, I mean, I know more now as a professional in the fire field, but like, you know, even he would have had to, he would have been in the woods pretty much for months, if not almost like, you know, for a long, long time before he would be cleared to be like, okay, he's going to live. You know? So yeah, even though seven days sounds like a lot, you know, he probably, most people probably would have passed away that, you know, at the moment, you know, of the, the uh, incident, but yeah. You know. So, you know, thinking back and I'm an ancient old lady now, and, uh, you know, that I've had years of drinking problems. So I've lost a couple of cells, but my memory is my story is this is my, this is my truth. Um, being there is I fully believe that Paul, my brother waited until everyone that loved and cared for him and was a big part of his life was there to be able to say goodbye. 
and then was able to rest finally in peace. I will tell you, I don't have many regrets in life, if just this one. And my mother, when I showed up to the hospital, because she was there obviously earlier than us, and and she told Diane and I, get on a get on a plane, you need to come see your brother, it's bad. And when we did that, as soon as we rushed to the hospital, only one person could go in at a time. And so Amanda, your mom was in there mostly, and then she'd switch out and then, you know, my mom would go in. And so at some point there was an opportunity for me to go in to, uh, to sit with Paul and to talk to him. And my mom was adamant with me, Lorianne, please do not go in there. I don't want you to go in there. And I would say she begged me. Um, and I, like an 18 year old would say, (laughs) you know, like you said, you just, you just, you think, you know, and, and frankly, this is the thing I loved my brother, love my brother. And I wanted to see him. Um, and I wanted him to know that I was there and I wanted him to hear my voice and I wanted him to know all the things that I hadn't been able to tell him from the last time I saw him to this accident. And I was able to do that but I will never get the picture out of my head of what he looked like in that hospital bed. Yeah. I've heard that even from my own family and, you know, well, obviously my mom's family and stuff, and they all say the same thing that, you know, it's a tough picture. It really is. To this day, even my aunt Melissa, and obviously she only knew him so long. That's not even her, you know, it's her brother-in-law, but not her brother, but she still says this day, she doesn't even watch horror shows. She can't, so you're not in that alone. So, you know, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's a, an interesting phenomenon. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, yeah, same. I, there are certain things, there are certain things I just cannot, um, manage without having a trigger of some sort. And that's really where the work of recovery comes in for me. It's really where I go into all of these, tools that I've just learned to not, you know, like right now I can just feel it. I could feel it inside of my body where I could definitely sit here and talk about it and relive these sort of really harsh emotions. And at the same time, it's like, what is that bringing either one of us other than information, right? Like you asked a question and I told it. So now I can just think back. And this is where I love is just to go back to play this movie instead of this movie that I was playing for my entire life, which was this hospital interaction. I now get to think about your dad when he was younger and when he was running around in his favorite place and like great kills and and the park that he had his you know down in Tottenville that he used to hang out in and just fuck stupid music that he would play all the time that made me crazy <laughs> right like the idea is to just remember the good in this person and not to be stuck on that that an awful picture and so back to your question um i i don't know i I don't think that there was an opportunity for him to live his best life. I really think yeah, that. I mean, knowing now what I know, as, you know, like I said, as a professional, like even if he lived, it would have been a pretty horrific lifestyle. Like he would for never sure. have been, you know, the man he was. So, it, you know, this is the thing I have to tell you. He used to hand make some concoction to actually like his own shampoo. <laughs> he was very married to the locks. And yeah. while not conceited in any way, he was vain in his good looks because damn, he's handsome. Um, so I just can't imagine him moving through life with with where he was. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, 
I, I, I truly believe that his spirit was with us until he was able to allow everyone their final goodbyes and then um, is now living in peace and and allowing us to or resting in peace and allowing us to live in peace. Yeah. So that was a lot. And you experienced that. So two years old, and then you now live, you have your mom and your sister and yourself growing up without dad. But luckily you have a couple of people in your life that, that are great father figures. So let's talk about your mom a little bit outside of being married to my brother. She's your mom and was a beautiful artist, had such a creative spirit. Also, mental health issues. Let's go through some of the things that you experienced as a child that made you believe, like you knew, like, wait, wait, mom, this isn't like, what, what's going on here? Yeah. I mean, looking back, like I, I could see a lot of her faults now, but at the time, like I said, I didn't really feel like she was crazy. I mean, I don't know if it's just being a mama's boy, being raised by that, like, you know, you're almost blinded to, you know, to some effect, like, you know, I thought she was an amazing mom up and Till I was really in my like teenage years. And, you know, even then I didn't falter. And even now I don't really falter, right. you know, but when you say but, that you, so what I want to get, what I want to hone in on is you're saying, so at, when you were a child, you, you said you didn't, you're calling them faults. So something was going on. Like you, now you grow up and you're like, Oh shit. Like that wasn't cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, now knowing like, you know, more from finding out, you know, after the fact of her passing, that she you know she had struggled with drugs and stuff like that she had health issues to begin with with the narcolepsy which a lot of people to this day it's still kind of like a i wouldn't say a trigger for me but something that i hold like dear to my heart is that like you know a lot of people don't realize narcolepsy is a lesser form of multiple sclerosis and it's a disease of the nervous system you know a lot of popular culture and media make it portrayed to be like oh i a joke where you fall asleep in the middle of a room or whatever. And, Oh, that guy's got narcolepsy. What a douche. Yeah. That's hilarious. But in reality, it's a lot more serious, you know, condition than that. It's, you know, it affects our nervous system. So it's affecting the the brain transmitting, you know, messages to any nerve endings in your body, which could be any muscle. So, I mean, you could be sitting there and if you're having some type of narcoleptic episode, it could be just your pinky doesn't work for, whatever reason could be your both your legs one foot your whole body you could be sleeping and not realize you know the thing is they sleep but their conscious is still going on so they believe they're awake Mm. and they don't know they're asleep so growing up with her having that disease you know i just she would had to be heavily medicated to have like a normal life on top of just i guess having her own demons and mental health issues that i found out you know later on in life you know she just wasn't really Mature, but when you think about a person being 20 years old, having twins, losing her husband, and then, you know, being forced into life, like, obviously, she had support from her family, but, you know, she was, you know, had a couple of arrests here and there for, like, silly things, usually not paying tickets and fines and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, later on, I realized that she had a drug problem when I was, you know, probably like 16, um she would take like prescription drugs so like at the time it didn't seem like really the worst thing mm-hmm. to me you know it's like oh, i have yeah. the stuff that she was prescribed but she right. abused it you know but now like looking back and obviously now we're in you know a prescription drug epidemic and you know pandemic in the world like you know these things are i think they're horrible you know even now like i've had multiple surgeries in my life and i tell them every time i'm like ah you know they're like what do you want i'm like I don't want anything. And they still prescribe it to me. You know, I'm like, 
I think prescription drugs are horrible, but, uh, yeah, she's, she struggled. You know, we were evicted multiple times, moved a lot. Um, you know, but you know, she did the best as like a young mom. I thought that was a pretty cool experience was just having my mom, you know, now I realize I'm like, my mom grew up with me. Right. You know, there's kids raising kids. That's, that's, I think the term they say now. Yeah. Um, you know, which is cool. Cause like, she liked the music that I liked, you know, we liked the music together. I liked the new band. I'd show her, she'd like it. You know, she was, it was cool having that experience. And she was a terrific artist, which, mm-hmm. you know, for some reason always seems to have something to do with like mental health. It seems like <laughs> the art community, for some reason, like, you know, a lot of people, you know, have, you know, their own struggles, whether it's mental health, drugs, whatever it is, but I guess the artists find their outlets through their for art sure. and creativity. And she was a terrific artist. I think honestly, completely underrated. I wish, you know, a lot of her work ended up getting either destroyed or thrown out, which sucks, mm. but I think she was, very underrated and i enjoy the art community now and i i see things and i'm like my mom could have done that better it's <laughs> <laughs> crazy i swear I, i'm not you know it's not even the overseller it's just i really truly believe that she was you know like a, a hidden talent that just wasn't you know able to you know get the recognition she deserved and you know i don't know if she ever got over my father and i truly believe that and one thing i look back at is you know as I got older, I think I was actually more of a reminder for her of my mm. father, which is kind of like a weird thing. There was times I remember, like, you know, obviously we all lived together. I lived with my mom. And I remember I'm like walking, you know, she's working out in like the living room and I'm like walking through the hallway. Yeah, I could see just the way she looked at me. She like gets chills and she, she just said, she's like, I looked over and I thought you were your dad. And she's like, you know, that was those must have been tough for her. And then you know, she had in and out of relationships and things like that. And pretty much all like the precursors to people struggling with mental health. She wasn't, you know, pretty much a hoarder in and out of relationships. You know, everything was just out of control pretty much. She never had like consistency. Yeah. You know, but she never really had anything stable. Like, you know, after your life's been short, you know, dragged out from underneath you and then, you know, you're just forced to raise two kids on your own. I'm, you know, couldn't imagine being in her shoes. Mm, me either. Yeah. <laughs> I'm scared to have kids now and I'm <laughs> pretty stable and I'm 29 years old. So. Well, they definitely don't come with a handbook. And uh, yeah, when you have already at, at such a young age, just in general, your, your mom and dad got married at a young age, having you and your sister at a young age, just in general is, is a lot. And then to, to add to it, the traumas and the circumstances are definitely, you know, build up. One of the things you have talked to me about, I, I, I'd love to talk to the listeners about is something that often goes undiscussed is police brutality. And that is something your mother and you experienced before her death. Yeah. Tell, that's tell us, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. So, um, yeah, it's something that that's, you know, I don't really actually talk about that too much, especially now it's kind of tough as like a first responder. And like, I feel yeah. like, you know, we're both like, you know, brothers in blue, whatever you want to say, like, you know, we all support each other and especially in the way the, the culture is now and stuff like that. It's almost sure. a negative to be a first responders in certain circles. Um, so you end up kind of like supporting each other more through that, those struggles and, you know, realizing we're in, you know, unprecedented times and, 
a lot of turmoil and chaos and something that's good is coming out of that and, you know, putting the spotlight on things and change that should have been happened years ago. And, and some of it's not so good, but I have a lot of friends now that are cops, but in all reality, though, I still believe, you know, obviously now there's even more of a, a light on police brutality. I think the standards for cops and at least their, you know, mental aspects and, you know, the power these people are given or, you know, sometimes a little too low for, you know, who they're accepting and, you know, such a high stress job. But, you know, I had that experience as a 17 year old kid. Um, It was April 7th, 2010. I was a 17 year old boy. Um, I just got my license. Actually, that was pretty good day up until that point. (laughs) I had gotten my license, went out with my friends. My mom had let me borrow her car which she used for work, which was covered in paint supplies. From there, I had a curfew. I think it was like 12 o'clock. I had to drive my girlfriend home at the time. So I drove her home, came back. My mom was still up, told her I had a good night. Everything was going good, getting ready for bed. She had emptied out the car for me from her work supplies. And I guess at that point decided, you know, she would rather gone and put her stuff in, you know, at night than wake up in the morning and have to lug it all in then. So. I was in my room talking to my girlfriend on the phone and I still remember to this day that um, she ended up, you know, my window was open and I hear her screaming my name. Um, So I run downstairs, uh, come outside and she had was bleeding from her nose and said that somebody was, you know, she went to go put her stuff in the car and somebody was in the car had broken in and then she confronted them and they attacked her, punched her in the face and then kind of ran off. So I'd given her my phone and then from there she called 911 and again, the story kind of takes like a crazy turn. You know, I guess it comes over from what I heard later on that it came over as like, you know, a domestic call possibly. So, you know, she was assaulted. They, we have like four or five squad cars pull up, multiple cops, they come over and one car goes off. They get, we give a description. They go off looking for the guy. And then there's multiple cop cars coming here. A lot of conversations going on. There was one female officer. I remember at the time she's kind of going through the car and trying to ask my mom questions. Oh, was anything taken? Just basic questions. But like, literally, they must have shown up and like, you know, it was like crazy. It was like two minutes. Like we called, they showed up. It was, you know, you know lights and sirens, the whole nine. And now my mom's kind of giving a statement to one officer. She's going, this other officer is a couple, like, you know, 10, 15 feet from her going through the car and they're trying to like talk across the car to her. But my mom's also partially deaf in one ear from getting uh, assaulted when she was younger. And, you know, she's not even hearing this, but I'm there. So I, I realized what's going on so i try and talk to the female officer and i tell her like yeah we haven't had a chance to go through the car you know we don't know if anything's taken and then i can kind of hear her tone change she's like oh well it doesn't look like anything was taken sure was broken into i'm like yeah i'm like we we wouldn't make this up my mom's literally bleeding from her nose and you know i don't know what her agenda was but she's getting nasty and then she gets nasty with my mom and she's like, excuse me, ma'am, do you know if anything was taken? You know, I know you, she's like, yeah, I know you want you to have this, you know, strapping man in uniform, take your statement, but you know, what, what do you want us to do? And my mom, like, you know, 
doesn't really know what to say. Like, I don't even know what to say then. And, you know, she keeps kind of repeating herself and my mom gets frustrated and is like, I want you to stop being a bitch and do your job, which, you know, my mom was fiery, you know, like, but it, it wasn't like she came out and that went like that off the bat. It was like kind of led up to that. And right at that moment, another squad car is pulling up who was, who we found out later had some type of personal relationship with the female officer and an officer, Michael McAvoy, who's now retired. Um, they're pulling up and they hear my mom kind of just lay out that statement. And the officer McAvoy, who's, you know, a military veteran gets on the face, big guy and just starts screaming at my mother's face. And he's like, who the fuck are you to tell us how to do our job? You know, take another oxy, you pill head, screaming at my mom. And I'm standing next to another officer and he looks at me and he's like, hey, is that your mom? I'm like, yeah. He's like, why don't you go over there and try and calm her down? Because my mom's not backing down. She's a tough woman, tough cookie. And uh, so I go over there and the guy's still in her face like a like a drill sergeant. And I'm like, so I just get in between them. I'm just like, yo, I'm like, you got to relax. I'm like. It's one in the morning. We called you guys and my mother just got punched in the face, let alone she has knock up. She's not even supposed to be up right now. And, you know, before anything happened, the guy turns to me. He's like, are you stepping up to me, son? And he uh, punched me in the face. I tripped, o- I tripped over the curb and I kind of just assumed at that point I'm going to get arrested. So I like roll over to my stomach. And, you know, I think I put my hands over my head. I don't really know. But then he got on top of me and at that point started repeatedly punched me in the back of the head, punched me in the ribs and then uh, placed me under arrest. And, you know, the rest is history pretty much from there. Uh, you know, I was charged with assaulting a police officer and a couple other like BS things. And my mom was arrested and we both had to go to court a couple times. They eventually dropped it and we sued and I won, but it was after my mom had passed away, which affected the case severely. And, you know, the one thing I regret with that case too is like the way it was portrayed, like, you know, I don't know. It's different when you go to like law and go through a lawsuit and stuff like that. Everything's kind of like black and white where it's like, so I'm suing, but I'm suing because I got a black eye. I got the shit beat out of me and I had a bad night. It was a bad experience, but there was really no compensation or really like way to explain the, the toll it took after that. Right. To be a 17-year-old boy who actually looked up the cops. I, at that point, I wanted to be a cop. I said I wanted to help people who's either a fireman or a cop. I always you know, preferred being a fireman, but I was more than willing to be a cop at that point. And to see that, I remember I was on the ground bleeding. You know, I'm bleeding on my, from my face. And uh, I looked up at, you know, there was like 10 cops sitting, you know, standing around me. And I'm just like, how could you let them do that to you? And one of them just looked at me and said, do what to you? Like, yeah, I was just dumbfounded and it was just an experience. And, uh, you know, it just made me think about things a lot differently and realize that, yeah, you know, maybe, you know, not all police are obviously good guys and there's always going to be bad apples, but, you know, it just was a negative experience, even with the law department, even with the, when they dropped the case, they put it on me as a 17 year old boy, a couple months later, they had given me the option they said we'll drop the case if your mother pleads guilty Mm. so my mom you know she was charged with i think resisting arrest like uh disturbing the peace or something like that or you know something like it was all lesser charges but like Mm -hmm. you know it came with fines and stuff like that like things that would not have been easy for us to handle at that time and 
also have a record. And, you know, so they come to me and they offer me, they're like, all right, we're going to drop your case if your mom pleads guilty. So my mom looks at me and says, you know, I'll do that if that's what you want. Because you got to realize I'm 17. I'm a senior in high school. Up until that point, I was, you know, had a pretty bright future. So like having this case over my head was pretty looming and intimidating. I mean, it was a felony assault charge against a police officer, which I didn't even assault the man. But like, (laughs) you know, you never know. You go to trial and you never know. know, So, you know, it was a lot of pressure. And I remember looking at my mom saying, like, we didn't do anything wrong. I'm not going to have you plead guilty, you know, and they turn around. They're like, all right, that's fine. We're going to, you know, separate the cases. Your cases are still dismissed. But I'm like, it's crazy that that's what they did to me. Like they put us in that position, like just to try. I'm like, it's changed my like, you know, view of a lot of stuff on that stuff. And even my family as being a pro cop, you know, my uncle and aunts are cops and stuff like that. And, you know, I don't know, you know, if they ever like they, a lot of them, I think blamed my mom Mm. because she was kind of had that fiery attitude about her. And to this day, like I defended her, like she didn't overreact. I mean, you know, yes. Did she get excited? But like, I thought she, her emotions were justified at that right, time. Right, right. Yeah, I didn't think she instigated the scenario. Um, you know, well, but I know a lot of my family blamed her. And I went through a lot of, like, you know, trauma from that. Like, you know, like I said, I wasn't I was 17 years old. I, I still remember to this day, you know, I applied to a bunch of colleges. I did pretty well in high school. You know, I was involved a lot of, like, extracurriculars and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. To this day, I still blame. I, I remember I got multiple acceptance letters before that point. And then shortly after I was arrested, a couple of weeks later, I got I got rejected from almost every other college. And like, I don't know if that has anything to do with admissions, but, you know, hearing how the admission process is and how selective they are, it wouldn't surprise me if they somehow were able to figure out it's public record that I was arrested. Right. You know, I have to, even to this day, if I applied for jobs, when I applied to be a fireman, I have to put it on. That mm. I have an arrest record, even you know, found guilty or not, it still has to be addressed, right? You know? And then, but also just the confidence of being like, you know, I felt like I was invincible as a seventeen-year-old man and boy or whatever, and you know, then having that whole experience happen was definitely humbling and definitely hurt me for a while and hurt my relationship at the time, even with my mom. Like seeing her, like that was a turning point in my life. You know, that was probably one of the worst experiences that I had. As like you know, an adolescence, and that was pretty much the turning point for my mom. After that, mm. when you say turning point for mom, what do you mean by that? Um, well, I know the fan. Like I said, the family kind of. I felt like they turned their back on her after that, and they blamed her. So she kind of lost that support. And then I know, you know, we were in and out of court at that point. You know, we had a couple court dates, and just her dealing with her her emotions, and she blamed herself. You know, she said it all the time that she wish she never called me down there. You know, and she said that yeah. often. So I don't really know like the toll it took on her, but like up until that point, she was working on this project. You know, I don't know if you remember or know the Paramount in Staten Island. It's on uh, what is it on like Bay Street? Mm-hmm. But it's just an old theater or whatever. And yeah, you know, it's it's never been opened since then. But she was in part of like this restoration project for it and was like the head painter for that there and like you know it was pretty tedious work because it had to be you know the standards were extremely high than a historical like landmark and things like that and you know she took a lot of pride she worked there for months and 
I know from there, like, you know, she was consistent with that and doing very well. And then after that, it kind of dropped off. And then I noticed like, you know, she would disappear for times and she mm-hmm. was dating Vinny at the time. And, you know, it just took a negative downturn with her, you know, her emotions and stuff like that and her stresses. And then shortly after that, she got sick. You know, she ended up getting what was confirmed to be shingles, but was misdiagnosed for like about three months because we didn't have good insurance and she'd just go to the clinic. Mm. And then uh, from going to the clinic, she got shingles. From uh, It got diagnosed as shingles, but they gave her medicine, which was penicillin that she was allergic to right Ugh. in her folder, which she had a reaction to. And then she attracted MRSA and then had MRSA, which like pretty much... She had two operations to try and get rid of that infection that would affect her head. She lost her hair and, you know, her beauty, which, you know, same thing as like my father was, you know, mm-hmm. she was a very beautiful woman. And, you know, you know, I can't even imagine being in this world. Everything's, you know, vain and beauty in this world, you know, at least, you know, media and pop culture and stuff right, like that. Right. You know, to be a woman in this world is very tough. And then to lose, you know, she lost her eyebrows. She had a skin, you know, rash. And, you know, it was a pretty horrific infection that she had and losing her hair. It was extremely tough. I couldn't imagine going through that. And she had the two operations. And every time it seemed like it worked. But the big thing with that was they would say you'd have to stay stress-free. Uh, so, you know, how, how are you going to be stress-free if you can't even pay the bills and you're going through these issues and have your, you know, boyfriend who has a drug issue and drinking issue and whatnot in and out of jail <laughs> it's like you know you have to be stress-free but you know all you all you do is live in stress so she would go get better for a couple months and then you know come back the mercy was bad that was nasty stuff so shortly after this situation it's obvious what i'm hearing is that this really affected the both of you how how much longer till your mom's last day on this earth was it? And tell us a little bit about that experience. So let's see. So that happened April 7th, 2010, and she had passed away August 7th, 2012. And by passed away, she had taken her life. So I went into obviously the health issues she had, the MRSA and the shingles. On top of that, with the narcolepsy, so that's the thing is to live with narcolepsy, I forgot the name of the drug. I used to know it offhand. But she was on pretty much a medical induced, like a medical version of speed. Mm-hmm. That was what she was prescribed that somehow balanced out her, you know, her life. So I can't imagine being on that for like almost 20 years of your life and having a good immune system. So her immune was, was definitely not good. But uh, the shingles and the MRSA like together was pretty horrible. So mm-hmm. she didn't leave the house much. You know, she definitely probably started abusing drugs more. You know, and then just even living through the pain that she was in, you know, I don't really know, but they say the shingles is extremely painful. And, you know, it seems like it's a common um, issue that some adults have. And, you know, but I think there's like severe cases that uh, they, uh, she had a very severe case because, I mean, there was times where like she was like almost bedridden. I had to like pick her up before there was, she was in so much pain. There was once I, was applying ointment on her and to carry her to the bathroom where she as a adult peed herself. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, 17 years old trying to take care of that. So I remember for a little while, I pretty much 
tried to like block the situation out and kind of like put her on my, uh, on her boyfriend's kind of like gave like, you know, handed off to her. And then he had reached out to me and then pretty much told me that like he needed support and needed the help. And that was just pretty much him just putting her back on to me. And then my sister was there, but you know, they started having their issues and she kind of moved out and then it was really just me and her for a while. And, you know, I was fully committed to helping her whichever way I could. And, you know, I don't regret that, you know, but it was definitely tough, Mm -hmm. you know, and I just remember going through emotions and things and thinking I was okay. But like, now I look back and I was like, yeah, definitely not okay. And, you know, I had relationships with you know, friends, family, and, you know, girlfriends and stuff like that. And, you know, I definitely look back and just say, like, you know, I appreciate them standing by me and supporting me. And, like, you know, I definitely probably wasn't the easiest to deal with, you know, but, uh, you know, seeing her, you know, fall apart and see that, like, slow decay kind of. And it's weird because, like, you know, I know at first I blamed, like, everyone asked me, like, how she passed away. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say she was sick, you know, because I felt like, you know, I, she was sick. You know, she had a lot of health issues. And, you know, I remember a couple of days before she had passed away, she came come in and I felt like, you know, we were doing good for a while and I felt like things were good. I remember coming home from work. I was a lifeguard at the time. And I remember seeing her and she was, you know, the Mercer was like full effect. And she was balding again and losing her hair. And I remember, you know, saying hello to her, giving her a hug and kiss and, you know, telling her about my day. And then I went off to my room and I cried for, I don't even know. I think I cried myself to sleep that night. And I, I'll, you know, just remember like asking, like, you know, if there's a God, if, you know, my dad's really there listening to me. I'm like, how could you let somebody your love fall apart like this, you know, and seeing her like that was extremely tough for me. And I remember I dreamed that night of her funeral. Like I just had a vivid dream, like deja vu. And I was like at her funeral in the funeral home, just, you know, in a suit and doing the whole fucking shebang, you know, everyone comes up to you. And I just was there. And then a couple of days later, she had taken her life and, you know, she had hung herself. Um, and you know then she was dead and i was living that shortly after that so it was always kind of a weird thing but you know it was tough that picture days before is like a knowing back to that gift you talked about earlier it's almost like you foreseeing right like it was I, i guess i look at it now thinking back about it like you know, our family's always been like a little spooky or like, you know, <laughs> nanny was in, fuckers. into, into the, the, you know, the witchcraft or whatever. So the like, I felt like, yeah, I felt like maybe I had like a little deja vu or something like that, or some type of little gift, you know, here and yeah. there, I felt like I've had experiences like that, but it also could have just been my body preparing me for something that I kind of knew was inve- inevitable. For sure. And I remember thinking at that time, you know, even through that experience crying, like, you know, my mom's all I knew. And I was like, even though my life wasn't great, I still was saying like, I can't imagine my life without her, Yeah, you know? And to this day, there's still things I miss about her and stuff like that. Obviously I think, think about her every day. I talk to her every day and, you know, it sucks, you know, going through experiences in life now, like 
not having her there. Like, obviously, I was married not too long ago, and, you know, I'm planning on starting my own family, you know, graduated college, graduated the fire academy, you know, all these events that she hasn't been there for, and that sucks. Right. You know, and going back to even what I was saying before, is like having her in my head for a while, I said that she was died of a sickness. She was sick. She was sick. Because I felt like it sounded bad to say that she would killed herself. But now I feel like it, it's kind of better to express that and like, you know, try and spread that message. And I kind of changed it not to, you know, a couple months after I would start saying that she killed herself. But it took a little bit to get there. And there's still different traumas now, too, with that. Mm-hmm. Like with my dad, it was always like, you know, it was a tragic accident. So like there was never any doubt that he loved me or like would have been there for us and all these things. But like, obviously I knew my mom loved the shit out of me and my sister and, right. you know, but it's still a different type of trauma to say that somebody chose to not be there, mm-hmm. you know, and I forgave in her because I've put myself in her shoes. And I think that's something that I've, you know, been blessed with, you know, I've been able to do that pretty well in my life is, you know, try and, you know, think outside myself and put myself in other people's shoes. Um, so I forgave her pretty early, but it still doesn't make it any easier. You know, I just, you know, there's times yeah, I can do it and separate myself and be like, wow, she had a tough life and she definitely wasn't, wasn't happy. And, you know, I don't think she thought that she can get to that point. And I don't know if she ever even got over my dad. And I really, to this day, don't think she did. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I still can be a little selfish and say like, yeah, you're an asshole because I really wish you were at my wedding and, you know, I want my kids to have a grandma and things like that. But, you know, it's all right. Well, I, I don't know that, you know, offering this information, the only thing I can say to that is, wow, first of all, with everything you've experienced and even knowing these things, it's still so difficult to hear just the detail of it because it's not normal, right? Like we think it's normal because we're in constant trauma and chaos, but it's like, this isn't fucking normal. And, and to survive that in general and to be able to move on and see the light and be positive. But the one thing that with your mom always strikes me and I want, I just hope that you understand this. And it's something that took me so much again with, with therapy and with my own recovery for years is to understand the illness that is created with addiction and that addiction is literally a brain disease. And while some say the choice of blah, blah, blah. So like mom's choice to commit suicide or mom's choice to do that. Yeah. It's likely that wasn't a choice and that was a medication or a, a depressive thought or like, yeah, you're I can definitely, I can definitely understand and believe that. Yeah. You know, she didn't feel like she had an option at that point. And she had, and it's, you look back at these things and she had said multiple times, oh, if, you know, I just want, she had said this multiple times that I still like now I latch on to. Like, I feel like it's, it was joked about, like, even, even now me, my friends will say, oh, no, man, I had a shitty day. I'm going to fucking kill myself. Like, you know, just joking. You know, you know, it's in, in jest, but it's right. like, it's said. So like, she would say things like, oh, if, you know, I wouldn't be here you and Madison weren't here. She would say like things like, you know, I just want, before I go, I just want you guys to be set up and I know you guys are okay. Mm. And like, she'd say things like that. And I'd be like, whatever, mommy, just being emotional and overdramatic, like, you know, but like, 
it's it's clear now, like looking back, that she had probably a plan. Um, you know, she definitely didn't love the life that she, you know, built for herself or had been the cards that she was dealt. But at the same time, like you said, like, you know, knowing those last two years and like from that point on with that, you know, incident with the police just was a kind of a downward spiral. And she definitely had gotten more medicated from either herself, the street, whatever it was. She was definitely on some things. And I could see like, you know, not just having that hopelessness. Because I know even with that lawsuit, that's another part of it, too, was we had sued the city, obviously, from the experience that we had, which was pretty horrible and felt justified in the fact that we thought we should be compensated and you know wanted to try and kind of punish those involved. And, uh, you know, they had like kept pushing the case off. And I think really that was kind of her hope for a while was like she kind of latched on to that and was like. I'm going to get this money mm. or whatever it was and we're going to be okay. And I could even set up the kids. Maybe even still she would have killed herself. I don't know. But I know that was something that she kind of held on to. Yeah. And a couple of days before she had passed away, we had gotten the case pushed back more. Uh, so we were pretty much ready to go. It was like August around that time, either end of July or August. And we had gotten a phone. Like literally it was like, I think we were supposed to be like that week you know, we were supposed to go to trial mm-hmm. and everything was in our favor. Everything looked very good. And uh, she'd gotten a call that the case was pushed back. And then also, I think they were trying to like, yeah, I know like they never really doubted my case because I was a 17 year old kid who had never had any trouble in his life. And, you know, I was pretty much even the lawyers, my own lawyers were like, it's a slam dunk case. They like have nothing. You know, they're like, this is a dream come true. Um <laughs> But with my mom, you know, just being an adult and living life and having some of her struggles, they, I think I I found out later that they were going to try and attack her side of the case Mm. and her as a person. And I don't know if that affected her decision as well. For sure. But I know pushing it back definitely upset her. And then I know probably hearing that didn't make her too happy either. Yeah. Wow. And so moving forward from that, which is often, like you said earlier, you know, you could, you could live, you could live in all that in the past and the traumas and the ideas of what should be or shouldn't be, but you have made your own life, not in the shadows of anyone, becoming a firefighter, marrying your best friend who is adorbs, by the way, so sweet. (laughs) Shout out Trish. Yeah. And looking forward to your future with her. And I just, at this point, having gone through all that and and what I'm loving is hearing the message that you sort of allowed yourself to believe the truth that, you know, it wasn't that your mom fell ill to to the particulars, but that she had a situation where suicide was the best answer. And for that, you have moved forward with allowing this to be a message. So if if you had one person that you could talk to today that that was struggling, what would be the message to them? You know, the 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 real quick message I always go to is that like suicide's a permanent solution to temporary problems. Like I feel like I, I'm very pos- positive and like optimistic. So like I always feel like I can get out of any scenario. And don't get me wrong, I've been in very dark situations and I've contemplated horrible things before and I've doubted myself and as I've grown older, like 
you face struggles. And uh, as a man, and like even in my situation, I felt like it was tough because obviously you look at me very proud. Everyone's proud of me and my family. So I've driven myself and I've allowed that to drive me. And I've taken pride that my family's proud of me. And I've taken pride of being the man in the family. And I've allowed that to become my identity. But then I didn't face, I didn't fail much, at least early on in life. So then as I became an adult and joined the fire service and struggled here and there and just, yeah, it's just in common things that everyone's going to struggle here and you have to face adversity and push yourself through it and work hard and work at your craft. You know, I'm a professional fireman. That's the reality of it. You know, you don't become a professional without working at something, but it was tough to go through life and then have those struggles later and have that be like, you know, some of the first experiences of failure and deal with those. Um, Mm -hmm. But I just feel like that you could, you know, with the right support and being open to having help is just the biggest key really is just that to understand, especially I realized after my mom's suicide, you feel very isolated and alone after something like that, especially like, you know, I felt like, you know, my mom, obviously she had her boyfriend, but it was really me and her in that house. So it's like, maybe I took it more personal than other people did. Like, I had opportunities to go away to college. I had opportunities to live with other family members. I had opportunities to come move out with you guys. I had, op- but I didn't want to abandon her. So then I felt like I sacrificed mm. things for her and she left me. So she chose right. to leave me when I didn't choose to leave her. So that's always a thing. But once I realized I went to some therapy, I went to group sessions of survivors from you know suicide and I wasn't the only one going through these emotions. There's always those what ifs. You know, and I think people could learn from that, that there's just, there's always someone going through something similar and there's people willing to listen and talk and you'd be more surprised about the people that care for you and want to reach out to you and be there for you. You know, you just kind of have to open those lines of communication. And I think that's really the key point. I think as a man, it's been, you know, mental health, I don't think as a in the country has been really addressed until recently. And, you know, as a man alone with like, you know, toxic masculinity and these parts of life, it's definitely way tougher. And, you know, I've made a point to like talk about my feelings and be open. And I, but I know like most of my friends and colleagues and, you know, people in my life, even, especially even the men I look up to don't talk about their emotions enough. And I think that's something that has to be changed. And, you know, hopefully we, by doing things like that, we can push that, along. Well, amen. And you definitely have done that today. We, I am sure of it with our listeners and hearing your message and your story is so inspiring. And one of the keys that I want to take away from this key points and taking away from this is the adversity part of it. You know, there's you going through, like, we'll keep talking about that, like going through these things when it's happening, it seems normal. It just does, you know, and then you get to a certain place where you're like, what the fuck just happened? And that's where I believe the strong will rise. I think that's where the people that are really meant to do something with their lives are going to do exactly what you and I are doing right now, which is talking about it, offering help, letting people know that you're not alone. Definitely. But I've also, I've had struggles with certain things in that aspect too, though, is like, yeah, I felt like I was very, a lot of people have asked me, you know, in my, you know, once they hear my story is like, how did you make it through that? Right. Like, why are you here right now? You know, and how are you like somewhat successful? 
I've always just said that I was kind of goal oriented and pretty much, you know, which was good. I feel like to this day, it helped. It's the reason why I'm here and, you know, made it to like, you know, I was able to achieve my goals and my dreams, but, you know, it also was weird because I compartmentalized a lot of things. So I blocked a lot of my emotions off Mm -hmm. and then kind of focused on what I wanted. I wanted to graduate college. I wanted to be a fireman. I wanted to get a, you know, a house. I wanted to have a family. I wanted these things. I wanted to not have to rely on anybody but myself. And I achieved those things, but at what cost at the same time? Like I know because I compartmentalize a lot of things, I shut my emotions off to certain aspects of my life, which was probably necessary at the time. And then it also made me too focused where like I was working three jobs in college. I was always hustling. Like no money was enough money. It didn't matter Mm -hmm. what I was making. And I wasn't enjoying my life. I was enjoying my relationships. I wasn't enjoying my friends. You know, I wasn't sitting back and like enjoying the, you know, the fruits of my labor, which I take away now. Not being much older, I'm still I'm only 29, but I, I've achieved a good amount. And I could sit back and I try and realize, you know, even though I still have more goals and more things ahead of me that I want to achieve, I'm trying to slow down and sit back and like realize, you know, I've done some good and I've done a lot of the things that I wanted to and I'm in a good spot to be able to just take a breath and realize like I'm okay I think some people need to hear that because I definitely didn't realize it during the time like Mm -hmm. and my my wife now has helped me through that big time you know that was a big thing for her like when I met her I remember she was she's a couple years older than me and I was like I'm mature for my age (laughs) yeah I would tell her my like life story and I would use that as an excuse. Like I've done all this like at by 24, I'm like, I'm mature. Then I realized like emotionally, really, I wasn't, you know, cause I didn't, even though I didn't rage at branch out and rage and, or go drinking and become an alcoholic or have drug issues or anything like that. I didn't really feel those emotions at the mm-hmm. time or, or go through those emotions. You know, I was able and I thought, because I talked about it, I was like, oh, I've, I'm okay with it. But what I really did was put up a lot of walls and didn't allow people to come into my life. You know, and that's what I had with my wife, Trish. I didn't realize, you know, the one person I loved the most in my life at the time was my mom. And then, you know, by her choosing to leave me, I put up a big wall against people. So I wanted to have this perfect relationship to find this perfect person, but I wasn't willing to really let them that far in for a long mm-hmm. time. And me and, Trish, me and Trish, our relationship struggled a lot in the beginning because she was committed to me from the start and was all in on our relationship. And I thought I was, but there right. was a lot of things emotionally that I wasn't really ready to go through initially and she put in the work and it mm-hmm. you know really sacrificed and really helped me get those walls down which i give her tons of credit thank so. goodness for trish yeah and what a wedding oh my god yeah that was a nice wedding it was amazing I'm really happy about that uh so beautiful and so many of us said definitely the best wedding we've been to I have to say, when you were just talking about that and your relationships and sort of not letting someone else in, what that reminds me of, of something I did for most of my life, which was, um, you know what? I don't even want to feel the good because it's going to hurt so bad when you leave. So let's just not do it at all. Yep. That was pretty much how I felt. It was like I was fine kind of just accepting the way things were in my life. I was like, I'm kind of cool doing good things. And I'm like, why not feel, you know, if yeah. I don't feel happy, I can't feel shitty. hundred <laughs> percent. 
Um, people often ask me now how it's possible that I have dogs. And that was one of my very main reasons not having them is because I knew they would always die before me. So why the hell have dogs? Because they're just going to die. And something hit me two years ago and was able to find the love of a pup. And <laughs> here I am, hmm. dog mom. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like we said before, it was just talking about like allowing yourself to live in the moment, you know, instead of living in thinking about what's next or the future of that relationship with the dog, you now have invited something in your life that's going to love you uncontrollably without any, you know, strings attached. None. As long as you feed it and take it out, that they'll love you. And even if you didn't, it'd probably still love you. Still. And it still loves me because I forget to feed it sometimes. Yeah. I love my dog. I have a dog as well. Aww. And that's, you know. Good therapy. Yeah, it really is. Paul, I have enjoyed my time with you so much, and I can't wait for my listeners to get to have a little piece of you by listening to this podcast today. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Of course. I've enjoyed my experience, and I hope it helps some people. It probably helped me, and I hope it helped you. And if anybody has questions or you know follow-up things, I'd love to be invited Absolutely. back on the show. 100% would love to. I will keep track of anything that comes through and we can do a part two anytime. We can do the Lori and Paul show. <laughs> yeah. I love good. you. I love you too. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Was that not just such a powerful and special episode? Thank you so much, Paul, again, for a beautiful conversation about your history and present. Speaking of present... When we had this interview a few weeks back, there was a secret happening that we weren't able to talk about yet. However, it's out in the known Hocus Pocus Baby O'Hara is brewing. We have the first babes of Paul and Trisha O'Hara happening right now cooking but in the oven march 2023 and rumor has it it's a boy and rumor has it they're going to name the boy paul thomas o'hara the third oh isn't that so sweet what just a beautiful legacy so excited Please wish them health and happiness, and we will keep you posted on Baby O'Hara. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Recovery Hour podcast. Successful podcasts equal subscribers and good ratings. Please take a few minutes to rate, review, and subscribe. To learn more about me, your host, Lori Windfell, jump on over to therecoveryhour.com. Here you'll find information on my coaching and speaking practices, as well as information on guests of the show. If you're still listening to this and you haven't subscribed to my mom yet, what are you doing? You're lame. So go do it right now. All right, all right, calm down. Sorry about that. He's just really excited for this to be successful since I been spending all of my free time on this project and not with him. While you aren't lame, as my son suggests, I would really appreciate a few minutes of your time to subscribe. While it doesn't seem like much, it really does help my goal in spreading the word of recovery. Until next time, let's continue to inspire, live, and give.